Genesis 32, verses 9 through 32. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. All right. We don't know how long this whole season of uh, coronavirus is going to go, but we're trusting God, and we're expecting uh, that he is going to keep working in our hearts and uh, ministering to us and revealing things to us perhaps in this season of change and difference that maybe we weren't able to hear or to see from God in the normal rhythms of life. And so seize this season, 
lay hold of this opportunity when things are changed and things are up in the air and things are different to see what God might want to say to you in the midst of this season of life. All right. So today we are continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New, the Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. And as Pastor Johnny mentioned, I uh, was not uh, foreseeing the global pandemic uh, when I came up with the title. But if you didn't think the world needed healing back in January when we started this series, uh, probably you can are more inclined to think so now. And throughout the sermon series, we've been tracing along uh, the divine promise that we encountered for the first time in Genesis 3.15, that a deliverer would arise from the line of Eve and that this deliverer would overthrow the adversary of humanity and would reclaim the world's throne for humanity, would bring healing to humanity and to humanity's world. And so that's really the story of the Bible from beginning to end is the way that God brings about a deliverer to come and to reclaim humanity's uh, throne and to restore humanity back to the world and, and the world back to humanity. This promise that was given to Eve, that one of her descendants would be this deliverer. This promise was given from Eve. It was passed on to Seth, her son, and then on to Noah, and then to Shem, and then to Abraham, and then from Abraham to Isaac. And then from Isaac, the promise is passed to Jacob. Isaac, we saw him last week in our sermon, uh, as a small child, he grows to become a man. He inherits Abraham's estate, Abraham's promise. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the promise that has been passed down all these generations is passed from Isaac to his second son, Jacob. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. Jacob's life covers 25 chapters in the book of Genesis. Basically, it's the whole last half of the book of Genesis. And there's a lot of ground to cover. We're not going to cover all of Jacob's story today and touch on every aspect of his life. But we're going to focus instead on a key aspect of Jacob's life, perhaps the key aspect of his life, which has been read for us this morning in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32 recounts a time when Jacob wrestled with God for a blessing in the midst of the most fearful and the difficult season of his life. So here's what we're going to do this morning as we look at Jacob's story. First, I'm going to walk us through the backstory of Jacob's life. I'm going to highlight a few key moments that will be familiar to many of you if you grew up going to Sunday school and uh, or have any familiarity with, familiarity with the Bible. But if you're new to the story of the Bible, or perhaps you're not even yet a Christian, not yet a Christian, uh, this is important stuff that will help you understand, help us all understand what's going on in Genesis 32. So in order to understand Genesis 32, we need to know kind of what came before that. So we're going to spend some time there at the beginning, and then we're going to take a close look at Genesis 32, and we're going to identify three principles from the story that I believe the Lord wants all of us to hear this morning. As I mentioned, a major theme of Jacob's life story is wrestling with God for a blessing in the most difficult season of his life. And so with the pandemic before us, I think that applies to all of us. 
The whole world needs a blessing from God right now. But maybe you're facing a crisis that isn't related to COVID-19. Maybe you had a good, solid crisis already underway and going long before global pestilence. And so this isn't a new crisis for you. This is just a continuation of a crisis that perhaps is complicated by all this going on in the world. Whatever the case, we're going to track along with Jacob's story and see what God has to say to us about seeking his blessing in the midst of our trials. All right, so Jacob's backstory. We're going to start. You don't need to necessarily follow along in scripture because I'm going to kind of move really quick, but we're going to go all the way back in Jacob's uh, backstory to his birth, which takes place in Genesis 25. And from the very beginning of Jacob's birth, it's prophesied already that there is going to be two sons born to Isaac, Jacob and Esau, and that Jacob, the youngest son, will receive the blessing, but that there will be strife and conflict between the two brothers their whole lives. And so I want to note these two major episodes of conflict or strife that take place between Jacob and Esau that set up Genesis 32. So the first episode is when Jacob cheats Esau out of Esau's birthright. So Esau was the oldest son, And so he had the birthright. We might have expected because he's the oldest that he's the one that's going to get the blessing from Isaac, but it actually is going to Jacob. But Esau's the oldest son. He has the birthright. And in those days, the birthright was the primary right of inheritance. Esau, because he was the eldest son, was going to get the lion's share of Isaac's property. But the oldest son could be disowned or he could give away his birthright. So it's kind of like how Edward VIII gave up the British British monarchy in order to marry Wallace Simpson. So it's like that, except whereas Edward VIII gave up the crown for love, Esau gives up his birthright for stew. So sort of the same, but not quite. Esau, we read, comes in from the field hungry. He'd been out hunting. He's hungry. Jacob is cooking some stew. Esau asks Jacob to share some of his stew with him. And Jacob says, I'll give you some of the stew if you give me your birthright. So this is a terrible deal for Esau, but he couldn't think past the moment. And basically he says, whatever, just give me some of your stinking stew. So Esau was impatient. He's impulsive. Jacob is opportunistic and underhanded, and they both come off looking pretty poor in this situation. Jacob shouldn't have taken advantage of Esau like that, and Esau shouldn't have treated his inheritance with such a cavalier attitude. But Esau doesn't care too much about the birthright, and I think the reason he doesn't care too much about the birthright is because he knows that Isaac, his father, intends to give him the promised blessing. Isaac does intend to give his oldest son, the promised blessing, even though the prophecy has said that Jacob will receive it. Isaac's going to give it to Esau, and Esau knows that the blessing is worth far more than the birthright. So perhaps that's why Esau is cavalier with his birthright. But it turns out that Esau isn't getting the promised blessing either, because in Genesis 27, we run into the next episode of conflict between Jacob and Esau. Isaac, who is old and nearly blind, calls Esau in to give him the promised blessing. And he asks Esau to prepare kind of a sacred ceremonial meal over which they will then pass the blessing. Well, while Esau goes out to prepare the sacred meal, Jacob sneaks in pretending to be Esau, dressed as Esau, takes advantage of his father's blindness, and he 
sneaks in and unwittingly gets, or he gets Isaac to unwittingly bless him and pass the blessing on to him. So when Esau comes back in with the ceremonial meal, it's too late because the blessing has already gone to Jacob and Esau gets ticked. I mean, really ticked. First the birthright and now the blessing. Jacob has taken everything. Genesis 27, 41 uh, tells us that Esau was so mad at Jacob that he vowed to kill him. So Jacob flees for his life, skips town, and he heads to his uncle Laban's to cross the Jordan River. And a lot happens with Uncle Laban. Not going to try to go into all of it here. The short story is that he falls in love with Rachel, who is Laban's daughter. He marries her, but he gets tricked into also marrying her sister Leah, which is a story in and of itself right there. And then in the inevitable rivalry between these two sisters about which sister can have the most sons, he's pushed by both of the sisters into marrying their respective handmaidens as well. It's like a fertility arms race here. And it's a crazy story for another time. So we won't get into all that, but the punchline of it all is that after 20 years at Uncle Layman's, Jacob has four wives. Eventually he ends up with 12 sons, plus at least one daughter that we know of, maybe more. And he has tons of livestock, which we've seen already uh, indicated here in Genesis 32. And then the Lord appears to Jacob and tells him to go back home, to go back home to his father, Isaac, and to go back home to the land uh, where he came from. And now the plot thickens and we get to Genesis 32. In verse three of Genesis 32, we read that when Jacob was crossing back into his old home country, he sends his servants ahead of him to tell Esau that he's coming. And no doubt he's hoping, fingers crossed, for a positive response from Esau. But the message that comes back from his servants is not encouraging. His servants tell him that Esau is coming at him with 400 men. And no doubt when the servants went to tell Jacob, went to tell Esau that Jacob was coming, Esau wasn't like, oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. Just tell him I'm coming to see him and I'm going to be so happy. All right? He doesn't say much, it appears. He just starts coming at Jacob with 400 men. So the servants come back distressed and they pass this distress on to Jacob. It's not a good sign. If 400 men coming at, that's literally the size of a small army back in those days. And there was no need for Esau to come with 400 men if he was coming happily and in peace. So Genesis 32, seven tells us that Jacob was greatly afraid and very distressed. He fears Esau's vengeance, that Esau is going to get back at Jacob for what Jacob has done to him. All right, so that gets us into our passage here. And we're going to find three principles that we can gather from this passage that three steps we can take when we find ourselves in a dire situation. So step number one, the first thing we should do is we should humble ourselves. Look at what Jacob does here in 39, 9 through 12, the beginning of our passage. He humbles himself in prayer. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. And then look what he says in verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love 
and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant for only with my staff, I crossed the Jordan. And now you give me back all this stuff. I am not worthy of all the ways that you have blessed me. And Jacob is not worthy of all the ways that God has blessed me. God has blessed Jacob in spite of Jacob. When Jacob is born, in fact, his name kind of has a double meaning. His name, Jacob, is a common name in the uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, and it means God will deliver. It's a good name. It's the name you want to give your kid. But the manner in which Jacob was born, he was born holding on to Esau's heel, and his name, Jacob, Jacob, is actually phonetically the same as heel. So as he's born grasping uh, Esau's heel, the name association moved not just from God will deliver or God will save as Jacob's meaning, but also Jacob as a cheat or Jacob as a conniver, Jacob as a supplanter who grasps the heel. So Jacob has lived his life with this dual identity. God does deliver him at various points along the way, but Jacob is also a conniver and a cheat and he isn't always making the right choices. And so here in this crisis, in this moment, he comes to terms with the reality that he is not worthy of all that God has given to him. And he acknowledges it. He acknowledges this truth. He hasn't led a pristine life. He's scrapped and cheated his way to success. And his, his successes have come with a cost. Indeed, the whole reason that he's in the fix that he's in right now is because of his pattern of conniving and cheating. If Esau wanted him dead, whose fault was that? I mean, why would Esau want him dead except because of the choices that Jacob had made? And maybe some of you here this morning are in a tough spot through no fault of your own. You're not like Jacob. And if that's you, you can sit out this first principle. But for the rest of us, we often find ourselves in Jacob's situation. Our wounds are self-inflicted and our troubles of our, are of our own making. And isn't that so often how trouble finds its way to us? We get patterns of living, patterns of cutting corners and skating by. Perhaps like Jacob, we've developed a pattern of lying and cheating and taking advantage of other people. Or maybe we're not a liar and a cheat like Jacob. Maybe we don't connive our way through life, but maybe instead we, we bully our way through life. We just shove everyone aside. Or maybe we go back and forth between the two. Or maybe we're too people-pleasing and accommodating. I've been reading through an account of World War II and focuses on the generals. And Dwight Eisenhower was the supreme allied commander. And he was so good in so many ways. But, but one of his Achilles heels, as it were, as the biographers tell the story, is that he was too accommodating and too people-pleasing. One of the biographers writes this of Eisenhower, that he was too susceptible to the personality of the last commander he saw before he made a decision. And so Eisenhower, he, he didn't have enough firm enough mind and he could, be, he could be directed around and he ended up making decisions that weren't the best decisions that got him into problems that he then had to solve or try to figure out how to solve because of his patterns of behavior. Or maybe you're too perfectionistic or too fixated on pleasure, or too driven by success, or you have some other unhealthy pattern of living that you've adopted to try to deal with the stresses of life, and it all stacks up. Just like it did for Jacob, you find yourself trapped 
in a net that you have woven by your own dysfunction. But if we followed Jacob's bad example, then we should also follow his good example. Because look what he does in this passage here. He humbles himself before God. He confesses his unworthiness and he throws himself on God's mercy. And if that's you this morning, then let me encourage you to follow Jacob's example. Humility is the doorway to deliverance. Humility is the doorway to deliverance. Both Peter and James, New Testament authors, later in the New Testament, tell us that when we humble ourselves before God, he will lift us up. And James goes on to say in chapter four, verse six, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So maybe this morning you need to have a moment of honesty with yourself and with God about how you got into the situation that you're in. Maybe you need to acknowledge your unworthiness and your missteps. Maybe you need to humble yourself before God and throw yourself upon his mercy. It's never too late to ask God for help. Even if you're the cause of your own trouble, God loves you. God cares for you. He will not despise your humility. I can't say what it will look like when he answers you, when he steps in to deliver you, but I can say that he will answer you. Jesus is the great statement, the great word from God, that he comes to the aid of those who are humble and contrite, even when we don't deserve it. And that is all of us. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all have made choices that have led us into holes that we cannot crawl back out of. And God has not left us to ourselves. But when we humble ourselves and when we acknowledge the folly of our own choices and we come to him in humility, confessing our sin and calling out to him for help, God comes to our aid. He comes to our aid through his son and then through all the resources that his son has at his disposal. So don't despair if you've dug a hole you can't climb out of. Humble yourself before God and throw yourself on his mercy. So the first thing we do following Jacob's example is we humble ourselves. The second thing we do is we get rid of distractions. Look what Jacob does here in 22 through 24. That same night he arose, Jacob, and he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. He takes everything that he has and he sends it on ahead of him and he stays alone at the camp. The text doesn't tell us exactly why he stayed alone at the camp. No doubt he was praying and seeking and continuing to seek God's help. But he wanted to be alone, not just with respect to people. He wanted to be alone with respect to his stuff as well. He sends on everything that he owns, everything that matters to him. He sends it on. I think there's a lesson for us here. Jacob is letting go of his worldly goods in order to lay hold of God. 
He's clearing away all the distractions so that he can focus his attention on the situation at hand. This is the season of Lent. And Lent is the season of preparation for Easter. And the Lenten posture is a posture of fasting or ridding ourselves of distraction. And Jacob is entering in, as it were, to a Lenten posture. He's getting rid of the distractions in his life so he can focus, so he can narrow his gaze down on the situation at hand, and he can go to God for that situation. When we in the season of Lent or at other times, when we fast from food and other distractions, when we let go of distractions, it's not so that we can get God's attention. We're not trying to impress God. Like, look, God, I didn't eat for three days. Like, aren't you impressed? Don't you really want to answer my prayer now? Fasting is not to get God's attention. We let go of food and distractions to get our attention because we need to focus down on God and we're so easily distracted. Sometimes we get to a place in life where our situation calls for undivided attention. The Lenten posture is like the explorer who who has found a long-sought ancient treasure map. He walks into his room and he, with a sweep of his arm, he clears the table of everything that's on it so he can throw the map down and spread it out undistracted. And I think Jacob is doing something like that here. He's clearing away all the distractions in his life so he can focus on seeking God's help in this crisis at hand. So listen, if you're in a crisis or you're in a tough spot and you are in need of God's help, then lay aside all the distractions. This is the time to lay aside all of the distractions that are getting in the way of you seeking God's help. We don't give up distractions simply to give up distractions. We give up distractions because they distract us. They distract us from engaging with what's vital and necessary. So what's getting in the way of your focused seeking of God's help? If you are in a bad spot and you need God's help, what is getting in the way of you focusing in on seeking God's help? What do you need to lay aside in order to do business with the Lord? Some of us will never fully grasp the true nature of our problem until we get rid of the distractions. Maybe you know enough this morning to know that something's wrong, but you you don't quite know it's wrong. You're not quite sure the cause of what's wrong. Maybe it's time for you to turn off the Spotify, get off of social media, get off of the Xbox and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat, quit overworking, quit trying to over-impress everyone around you. Perhaps you need to pull back from your friend's circle for a season. You need to get rid of the things in your life that you go to that are distractions that prevent you from engaging with the problem at hand and coming to God with a, for a solution. Sometimes, though, we're not willing to make the hard choices of letting go of distractions because we've come, become so dependent upon them. And that says something in and of itself. If the thought, for example, of getting off Facebook gives you the cold sweats, then maybe that's a sign that you should be getting off Facebook. We need to be able to let go of the things in life that are, as it were, our crutches, the things that we go to to distract us from what we should be paying attention to. Hebrews 12 exhorts us to lay aside both the sin that entangles us, but also to lay aside every weight that holds us down. There are things in life that aren't sins, 
but they're weights, they're distractions. They hold us down. And we enter into seasons of life where we need to lay those things aside. Lent is one of those prescribed seasons in the rhythm of the church calendar, but we all have our moments where we need to enter into a Lenten posture, even if it's not the Lenten season. If you're in a crisis or a bad spot, take some time to get alone and prayerfully ask God to reveal to you where you're being distracted. Take some time to get alone and ask God, where am I being distracted? Where am I being distracted? And then be willing to make the hard choices, the uncomfortable choices necessary to get rid of those distractions. So humble yourself, get rid of distractions. And then finally, this third principle, hold on to God until he answers. Verse 24 tells us that while Jacob was alone at night and praying to God for deliverance, a man came and wrestled with him until the break of day. We find out as we continue to read through the passage, this man is none other than God himself. So here's Jacob alone in the dark, facing a crisis moment of his life, the crisis moment of his life. He comes to God in humility. He gets rid of the distractions and he prays to God for deliverance and God comes and attacks him. It's actually not what we would think would happen in this situation. It's a very strange episode. It's maybe one of the strangest episodes in the Bible. Even more strangely, the man, who of course is God, sees that he can't prevail against Jacob. So what does that mean? I mean, surely if this man is God, then he can clearly prevail against Jacob. I mean, indeed, we see that he touches Jacob's hip and puts it out of joint. And if he could just touch Jacob's hip and put it out of joint, he could have touched Jacob's arms and Jacob's head and Jacob's neck, and he could put them all out of joint. Clearly, he could have prevailed if it was just a contest, contest of strength about who was going to kill who. I think the explanation for this is seen in what the man says. He tells Jacob to let go, but Jacob refuses. And I think we're supposed to understand that the man couldn't prevail upon Jacob to give up. Jacob just keeps wrestling. Jacob, he's not winning, but he keeps wrestling. I remember when I was a little kid, maybe, I don't know, five, six, seven, ten 10 years old, I can't remember, but I loved to wrestle older guys. And so I would always get into tussles with either older teens or young men or whoever it would be. And there was no way that I could win because I was younger, but I just kept at it. Even after they were ready to be done, I would just keep coming at them, holding onto their leg or whatever. I would just keep coming after them. And eventually they would tell me to give up and let go. Or if like they were too polite, my mom would say, Gerald, leave him alone, give up, let go, do something else, right? I would just keep going after them and keep holding on and I would keep uh, uh, asserting as it were the attack, right? Even though I wasn't winning. And I think this is what's going on in Jacob's situation. Jacob couldn't win, but he wouldn't give up. He just kept holding on to God and asking for a blessing. His situation is desperate. He is justifiably afraid of Esau's justifiable anger. He's overmatched or undermatched rather against Esau. And he needs the sort of help that only God can give. And Jacob won't let go of God until God blesses him. 
finally, by the end of the chapter, God does bless him. But the question that I would pose to us in this is, why does God make Jacob strive so long and so hard for this blessing? Why does God come to him at all to wrestle? Why not just grant the blessing? What if Jacob had asked for a blessing, the wrestling match began, and then after 15 minutes of wrestling, Jacob said, oh, this is too much trouble. It's just not worth it. It's just too hard. I'm not going to go through all this trouble for this blessing. But the longer the wrestling match goes on, the more clear it becomes to Jacob, to Jacob, that all of his eggs are in the God basket, the basket of God's deliverance. God was his only hope. God was his only hope in the midst of this situation with Esau, and he wasn't going to let go until he had God's blessing. It was God's help or nothing. And that's where we need to be too, I think, especially when we are in our toughest spots. It's God's help or it's nothing. If you're in a tough spot this morning and you need God's blessing, don't just say a prayer or two. Don't just gesture towards heaven and then go on your way and trying to figure it all out yourself. Jacob's example is teaching us that we need to fall on our faces before God and not get up until he answers. God will give his blessing. It may not be the blessing you want or the answer you're looking for, but he will give you what you need. Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. When we seek God with all of our heart, when we give our all, when we lay hold of God and we say, I won't let go until you bless me. I need you. You are my only hope. You are the only answer to the problem that I am facing. And we hold on. God sometimes will make us hold on to really drive home the point that he is the answer that we need to persevere in finding. When it comes to life's biggest and truest problems, question problems like life's meaning, our existence, our purpose, our identity, our hope. In the biggest questions, the biggest problems of life, that really underlie all of these problems up here, right? All the problems that present themselves. These are just the presenting issues. You trace all those back and you get down to the core issues. Those are core issues about life's meaning and existence and purpose and identity and hope. And at the core of all of our problems, it's God or nothing. It's God or nothing. And how tempting and easy it is and how empty it is to try to find our solutions somewhere else. And too many of us just skip from one shallow solution to the next. Our job, our marriage, our children, our friends, our accomplishments, our money, our status, all of these are just more distractions that keep us from getting to the real nub of the issue. Nothing except God can really solve our deepest and truest problems. So listen, if you're in a bad way this morning, if you need the kind of help that only God can give, then set your heart to wrestle with him and refuse to give up until he blesses you. Some of you might be asking, well, what does that even mean to wrestle with God? What does that, what does that even look like? Well, I think it looks like what we've already seen. It looks like humbling yourself before God, 
owning the part of the problem that you have created. And then it means ridding yourself of distractions and false comforts and things that you would be prone to look to for solutions. And it means laying hold of God until he blesses. Earnestly seeking God as your only solution. God holds the key to the meaning of life. And we need to wrestle with him until we find him. So whatever your situation today, maybe you are in a situation complicated by the coronavirus, or maybe you're in a situation that is independent of the coronavirus. Whatever your situation, let me encourage you to wrestle with God, to get alone with God, to humble yourself before God. God will come to you and give a blessing. And if we persevere and we persist in seeking him, we will have what he wants and desires to give us. He is our salvation and our hope. He has given us hope in Jesus Christ. So let's keep looking to all that he gives us in Christ as we continue to trust in him this week and in the weeks to come. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you that when we, like Jacob, created problems for ourselves that were too big to solve and we had dug ourselves into holes that we could not, even with our best efforts, dig ourselves out of. When we needed you, you have come to us in the person of your son. And Jesus is for us our deliverance and our salvation. Jacob, at the end of his Story in chapter 32, he he says, I have seen God face to face. We want to see you face to face, Lord. We want the deliverance that you will give us. We, We turn away from all the vain and empty things that try to promise deliverance, all the things that are just temporal and of this world that can't ultimately provide for us the core needs of our life. Help us to find our hope in you. God, give us the humility and the focus to find ourselves in you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.